Hello and welcome to Landings with a Flare, the podcast where we supplement and support flight training. This is Captain Teresa. This episode will be a pilot ground school lesson in the format of a guided discussion. This conversation was recorded on the audio platform called Clubhouse. You will likely hear some variation in audio quality as speakers tune in from around the world. Many of our ground school lessons include handouts, which you can find along with other resources in the podcast show notes. They are also on our website, landingswithaflare.com. We hope you sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Welcome aboard. I'm going to talk about the rest of the I'm Safe checklist real quickly, emotion, eating, and dehydration. And then we're going to talk more about other aspects of medical factors. Let's talk about the E in the I'm Safe checklist, which is emotion. Does anyone want to maybe give an example of how strong emotions have broken your concentration while flying? Enrique? Let's say you have a family problem. I don't know one could be um, 100% focused in flying when you have such a major problem going on with your life and going with the letter E of emotion, uh, that problem would totally affect your emotions and your concentration ability during the flight. Yes. Sometimes we don't realize that our brain is really busy processing something in the background, especially if we maybe got into an argument with a loved one, or maybe you got fired from your job, or you had something that put you in a state of shock. Maybe you were just in a car accident on the way to the airport, or maybe it was something even more serious, like uh, a loved one passing away or something like that. I had a student that was one day before his instrument check ride when he found out his dad passed away, and he was in such a state of shock that he was still preparing to take his flight the next day, and, and he didn't even know, he was so out of it that he couldn't even stop himself, and I said, no, 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 and I mean, I, I was like, no, you are not going to fly tomorrow, you're in a state of shock, but people don't often realize that, which is why we have to teach it now when you're not in such a highly emotional state so you can recognize it of yourself later. We're going to move right on into eating and hunger. Obviously, if you don't eat, you can get low blood sugar, which is sometimes called hypoglycemia. And if you don't drink, you can get dehydration. And then, of course, that can lead to a lot, all sorts of concentration problems. I think eating speaks for itself. I've, although I will say that as a flight instructor, I've seen students who are normally really good do just a terrible job flying. And then I might question them and find out that they just missed lunch or something like that. Just the basics. Remember, sleep, food, water, It's a, breathing properly. It's amazing how those affect us. Okay, so let's talk just a little bit more about dehydration. If you are thirsty, do you get thirsty before you're dehydrated or after you're dehydrated? Destiny J. I was going to say that I typically get thirsty after I'm dehydrated. That's actually quite common. By the time you're thirsty, I believe the statistic that the FAA has says that you've already lost 2% of your total body weight in water by the time you're thirsty. And then the other danger is that if you drink just a little bit of water, it actually turns off the thirst signal too soon in your brain. So you might drink a little bit and not feel thirsty again, but you might still be quite dehydrated. And if you're dehydrated, you can have lack of concentration, headaches, fatigue dizziness, 
eventually you can get like abdominal cramps and pass out and that kind of thing. It's not fun. It's not fun. Let's talk about the airplane. Why do people get so dehydrated when they fly? What are some of the reasons? How about the air in the airplane, right? It's, if you're in a jet, it's very dry air, so it's easy to get dehydrated. And then what about all these other things that we're drinking, like coffee? That's a diuretic that can make you more dehydrated. Alcohol, if you had any of that. So there are lots of things that can make you dehydrated. I have heard that kidney stones are actually a real problem with crew members. They're actually quite common because of this constant dehydration. And I have also heard, I don't know this, but having a kidney stone can be almost as painful as giving birth to a child. So if you don't want to have really bad pain and kidney stones, consider drinking lots of water and staying hydrated. We are going to speak about all of these other aspects of medical factors uh, in addition to the I'm Safe checklist, which we've already discussed. So we're going to start by talking about hypoxia. This is on page nine of the handout. We're going to define it, and then we're going to talk about the different types. Who would like to give a basic definition or explanation of what hypoxia is? Caroline. Yeah, it's when you lose oxygen, like constantly, it depends on the... Oh my God, I'm losing my English. <laughs> yeah, it's a lack of oxygen, not having enough oxygen. That is the basic, basic definition. That is, that is actually what I was looking for. Okay, there are four types of hypoxia. I will be a little more impressed if someone remembers all of them, but who remembers the four types of hypoxia? Johnny. Let's go with um, hypoxic hypoxia, hypemic, stagnant, and histotoxic. Yeah, that's like one of the hardest questions of the whole day is knowing that list. Hypoxic hypoxia is the lack of general oxygen available to the lungs, like, for example, flying at a high altitude. That's what we often think of. But what is hypemic hypoxia? Hypemic hypoxia is caused by the reduction of the, the blood's oxygen carrying capability. Like, for example, anemia and, and blood loss are most common causes of that type of hypoxia. Perfect. Thank you. Donating blood, having anemia, which is not enough ox or iron, smoking, carbon monoxide poisoning. We'll talk more about carbon monoxide in a moment. That's hypemic hypoxia. Okay, next, stagnant hypoxia. Let's have Destiny J do that one. Isn't this one when, like, you're pulling too many G's are, it's caused by you pulling G's. Exactly. That's when the blood can't circulate, like pulling G-forces. Excellent. Histotoxic hypoxia. Manuela. It's literally the histotoxic. It's pretty much what you hear, the toxic. So it's caused by poisoning of the cells resulting in abnormal of low supply oxygen to the body cells. Yeah, histotoxic hypoxia it is when the cells cannot use it effectively. So that's the cells that it's being delivered to can't use it. And that can come from poisoning from various kinds of poison, some drugs like antihistamines, tranquilizers, sedatives. It often comes from drug, various forms of medications and drugs. Okay, so I'm going to give you an analogy that Captain Shanita came up with and taught us in a previous room. She said that it's like a train. The four types of hypoxia are like a train. Hypoxic hypoxia 
means that there's not enough oxygen available or what we would call partial pressure of uh, uh, the pressure around. So imagine that a train pulls up to a station and there are no passengers to get on. That's like there not being enough oxygen, like at a high altitude. Hypemic hypoxia is when the blood cannot hold oxygen. The red blood cells can't attach to the oxygen. So that's like the train pulling up to the station and the passengers are waiting, but they can't get on the train. Then you have stagnant hypoxia. That's where the blood can't circulate. So that's like the train can't move forward anymore. So maybe the passengers got on the train, but the train is broken and it can't move forward. And then histotoxic hypoxia is where the cells that it's delivered to can't use it properly. So pretend that the the train went to go deliver the passengers to a new station, but the new station doors wouldn't open up and the passengers couldn't get off. Let's talk about the symptoms of hypoxia. Destiny J. Of the fingertips, dizziness, nauseiness. Yeah, those are all good. Dizzy, nauseiness, or bluing of the fingertips. And the official name for that is cyanosis. If you ever bought printer ink and you bought the color cyan, C-Y-A-N, that's blue, and that's where that bluish comes from. Although some people say, well, but my skin doesn't really turn that blue. I mean, especially if you like have like a darker skin tone. But think of what your skin looks like if you have your circulation cut off. Maybe you had a rubber band around your finger for a while or something like that. It's really the, the blood losing its redness is what's happening. Okay, who else would like to list more symptoms of hypoxia? There's so many. Johnny. Yeah, I want to kind of differentiate some of those things as well, because I think some of the symptoms are subjective and some of them are not. Some of the subjective symptoms would be like some of the things Destiny J said, the tingling numbness, uh, blurred vision, increased breathing rate. But I think those things may be somewhat subjective, you know, but uh, some of the things that are not are hyperventilation, the cyanosis, as you you said, and poor judgment. So I I, I can speak to that a lot, right, because I fly in an unpressurized aircraft doing jump ops. So a lot of times we're looking for those things in each other about hypoxia because it happens, you know, it happens to us flying at 14,000 feet unpressurized. That's great. So I'd like to pick up on what you said about it being subjective to different individuals. It is true that different people have different symptoms of hypoxia, and supposedly each person tends to react the same way every time. But in my personal experience, I actually would question that a bit too, because I know I've reacted differently. One common symptom is euphoria. Would anyone like to explain euphoria? Okay, euphoria is a sense of well-being or happiness. Now, what we have to remember is that a lot of symptoms of hypoxia are similar to symptoms of being drunk. That is your best memory aid for how to remember it, because being drunk is a type of hypoxia. So you can have, again, impaired judgment. You can have this happiness, this euphoria. Some people are the opposite, and they get irritable or angry. But you have to know that sometimes you're just feeling happier and happier and happier, and that's actually a dangerous sign. And you see how dangerous and insidious that can be. So you have to be aware of that. Eventually, you can pass out, (laughs) which is bad, and uh, you can become unconscious or die if you don't have enough oxygen. So again, as a pilot, you want to be able to recognize early warning signs. Oh, by the way, if you do lose pressurization, there's something called a time of useful consciousness. I don't have a lot of time to go into that, but depending on what altitude you are, you may have 
a whole lot of time or not a lot of time to deal with it. Now, let's talk about carbon monoxide because that is related. Basic carbon monoxide is a colorless, odorless, tasteless gas. It's a byproduct of combustion. That's the official definition, a colorless, odorless, tasteless gas that's a byproduct of combustion. What does that mean? It means that when there's a fire, it usually sends off this type of gas. And that is especially common in small airplanes that tend to have heaters that can leak or crack or that type of thing. And then the exhaust gases can come into the plane. You might smell other exhaust gases, but you won't necessarily smell the carbon carbon monoxide. So what would you do if you suspected that you were getting, let's say it's the winter, you're flying a small airplane, and you start getting signs of hypoxia and you think it might be carbon monoxide poisoning. What would you do in a small airplane? Destiny J. If I had on like the heat, I would turn off the heat because probably that's where that carbon monoxide fumes are coming from. And then I would open up the windows just to get some fresh air into the cockpit as well. Perfect answer. It's probably coming from the heater. So turn that off and get fresh air. You open the air vents, open a window. It's usually safe to open a window in a small airplane. I will say it's actually quite dangerous in the home as well. And I encourage people to get a carbon monoxide detector. Okay. We're going to move on to hyperventilation. Who would like to define hyperventilation? Let's start with Johnny. What uh, define hyperventilation is a excessive rate and uh, depth of respiration that leads to an abnormal loss of carbon dioxide from the blood. Thank you. That's perfect. Yeah, so it's a lack of carbon dioxide and it comes from that fast in and out breathing Uh, that abnormal breathing where you'd lose too much carbon dioxide and it can look like a panic attack. So it's actually easier to hyperventilate when you're flying. Does anyone want to speak to why? Destiny J? Because the stress load that you're put under, you have a lot of stress that you're put under and you can easily start breathing at too fast of a rate. Yeah, and uh, Johnny, go ahead. I just want to piggyback on that. A lot of times us as aviators, we all have that that alpha mentality where we're trying to fight through these things, whether it's, you know, it's weather, decision making, uh, stressful events, an emergency procedure, any no matter how large or small the aircraft is, we, we have, you know, whatever we're dealing with and we're going through that, we're trying to fight through and your body's response is the stress is picked up, your emotions have picked up. Now you're you're starting to breathe a little bit heavier, you thought you could handle it, now you're unsure about the decision that you made, so you start to hyperventilate uncontrollably. You don't even, you know, you can't calm yourself down. So as a result, you start to hyperventilate. Yeah, very true. And we need to be aware of that. So stress can have a big impact. And remember that also when you're at a higher altitude, there's less carbon dioxide there in addition to less oxygen. Because all of the percentages of the gases in the air stay the same. It's just that there's less of it because of the lower pressures. Now, the symptoms of hyperventilation, we know about the rapid breathing, but a lot of the other ones are actually really similar to hypoxia. Like You can be lightheaded, feel like you're suffocating, drowsy, tingling in your extremities. So a lot of times it's really hard to tell if you're hyperventilating or if you're hypoxic. But when in doubt, if you have oxygen masks, the FAA often asks you to put it on. 
because maybe you're still hypoxic and the hyperventilation can be caused by hypoxia. On the other hand, if you're wearing an oxygen mask and then you get that, it might be a sign that your oxygen mask is not working properly as well. So that's also something that you would check. With hyperventilation, if you do not correct it yourself, your body will eventually pass out and then your subconscious brain will override your breathing and fix it. But when you're flying a plane, you don't exactly want to pass out. That's a bad time to pass out. What are some other ways that you can correct hyperventilation before you get to that point? Enrique? The old paperback trick. One of my favorite things. Uh, sometimes you can breathe in and out of a paper bag. Destiny J, did you have more? Oh, I was just going to say what Henrika said, the paper bag trick, because you're breathing in that carbon dioxide that you breathed out. You're just breathing it back in if you don't have a oxygen mask. Yeah, that's the one that a lot of people like to remember. Although there are some, there's some controversy about it. For example, if someone's actually having a heart attack and then you put a bag, it, it might look like they're hyperventilating. And then if you put a bag over their mouth, that can be dangerous because that might give them less oxygen. So that one is actually a little bit controversial. But there are other ones like talking and singing. If you're with a passenger who's hyperventilating, you can try to ask them questions and get them to talk. If you're by yourself, maybe just sing a song. Any song that comes to mind, it doesn't matter if it's Mary Had a Little Lamb or the Beatles or some other song. Hopefully no one will hear you. (laughs) Make sure the microphone isn't hot. And uh, just sing yourself, sing because that'll force you to slow down your breathing. There are also breathing techniques you can do as well. Great. I think that covers hyperventilation pretty well. Anything we missed? Destiny J. I was just going to mention uh, one more thing. Just with like carbon monoxide, you can also open up the vents as well to get air and uh, drink some water too, and it'll help you calm down. That's a good point. And so remember that in this case, you if you're hyperventilating, you don't want to breathe deeply. It's actually almost better to breathe shallowly. There is a technique called square breathing where you hold your breath for four seconds, breathe out for four, hold for four, breathe in for four. That's actually like a shallower type of breathing that helps. Speaking of deep and shallow, we're going to move right on and we're going to talk about scuba diving and how that relates to something called decompression sickness. This is on page 12 of the handout. When you scuba dive, if you fly too soon afterward, you can find yourself in a lot of pain, in a painful condition. Who would like to explain a little bit about that? Destiny J. I want to say because when you're scuba, when you're scuba diving, there's like these nitrogen bubbles that go into your um, blood cells. I'm sorry, I'm outside if you can't hear me, but and um, if you don't wait at the specified time, then you get into the air. It could be a lot worse. Excellent. So the condition that's painful is called decompression sickness, or a popular name is the bends, B-E-N-D-S. And like Destiny J said, you can get the nitrogen dissolved into your blood and into your body tissues when you're at a underneath the water at, at a I want to say a low altitude. I don't th- a low depth is that the better term? <laughs> anyway, when you're deep down, it can dissolve in your body almost like how gases are dissolved in a soda beverage like a Coca Cola. And then if you come up too quickly, it's like if you took your Coca-Cola bottle and you shook it and then you took the lid off, you'll get all these bubbles that want to come up out of your tissues and your blood and your organs. 
And our human bodies were not meant to have little bubbles in them. So that can be very painful. Let's talk about the the wait times for flying after scuba diving. I know what the FAA mandates. I do not know what other countries do. But let me give you, so they're, they broke it down into four categories. The best way to teach this is to actually put it in a chart, like you can see on the bottom of page 12, almost plot it out in a chart or a table. So there are two different kinds of diving, scuba diving. One is a shallow dive called a non-controlled ascent. And the other one is a deep dive, which we call a controlled ascent or a decompression stop diving. Let's say that you did the shallow dive and you're only going to fly a small airplane below 8,000 feet. How long should you wait? 12 hours with a shallow dive. Okay, now you're below 8,000 feet, but you did a decompression stop dive, a deep dive. Who wants to answer that? How many hours? I would go with the double, 24 hours at least. Correct. Okay, now... You're going to fly above 8,000 feet, and it doesn't matter what kind of shallow or deep dive you did. You're just going to fly above 8,000 feet. Maybe you're taking an airline someplace or something like that. How long should you wait? I would add 12 hours to that, so now we are at 36. Actually, you can stay with the 24, just 24 hours. So everything is 24 hours unless you're staying below 8,000 feet, and it's a really shallow dive. Okay. That takes care of scuba diving. We have uh, just a few more. Let's talk about vision. With vision, we need to know that there are two different types of nerve cells in the back of the eye that see things differently. Who would like to give us the names of the different types of nerve cells? Some work better during the day and some work better at night. Destiny J. I'm going to give the peripheral vision for night. And then I forgot about the day. Yeah. So at night, it's the peripheral vision, which is the rods. And then during the day, it's more of the center vision, which is the cones. The cones are good at picking up a lot of light, which is why they work well during the day. They can also see color. And during the daytime, you should look straight at objects and even pause your eyes to be able to see them very well. But at night, there's not enough light to make your cones work well. So that is why you need your peripheral vision, which is your rods. And those do not see color very well. So what is the recommendation for how to scan at night? Who wants to give that? How do, how do you look for traffic? Destiny J. So don't uh, stare directly at a light or traffic at night. You want to look like on its side and like use your peripheral vision to actually scan? Yeah, you should scan slowly and use peripheral vision or off-center vision. So move your eyes slowly and use your peripheral vision to look for other airplanes. And that's different than during the day where you should move your eyes in short, sharp movements, or I'd almost say staccato movements if you like that term. But you move your eyes and then you pause them during the day. It's very different than at night. It usually takes about 30 minutes for your eyes to adjust to the dark, and that's because there's a chemical that's seeping into your eyes that help your eyes adjust. And I don't know the actual name of it, but I know that some people call it visual purple. So it takes a long time for your eyes, for that chemical to come into your eyes to adjust at night. But if you see a bright light, then almost immediately that chemical can leave your eyes and you lost your night vision. 
Any other comments on night vision? Yeah, Johnny. The chemical called rhodopsin. Ooh, thank you for knowing that. What um, can you spell that? Ro- rhodopsin is spelled R H O D O P S I N. Thank you. Yes. All right. That is night vision. Ooh. Okay. One other quick thing about night. The FAA recommends that people pilots use oxygen if they're at an altitude above 5,000 feet at night or the equivalent of that altitude if it's a pressurized plane, like a a pressurization altitude. Now, normally you don't have to use oxygen until higher. We didn't really talk about that because I was trying to save time, but normally you don't have to use oxygen until a higher altitude, but why would it be such a low altitude at night? Anyone want to speak on that? Okay, so remember how Destiny J said that you use your peripheral vision at night? Well, it turns out that if you're getting hypoxic from flying at a higher altitude, the first thing you lose is your peripheral vision because you've got all these small blood vessels and capillaries going out to your peripheral vision. And when you start losing oxygen, that's one of the first places that will get starved of oxygen. So if you're getting hypoxic and losing oxygen, then you are essentially getting tunnel vision or losing your peripheral vision. The problem is that's your only vision at night or your best vision at night. So you see how those two can add up to be a problem together. So that's why it's recommended that you use oxygen even as low as 5,000 feet at night. We have just a few more subjects to touch on. The next one I want to touch on is motion sickness. Would anyone like to talk about uh, maybe just a little bit about how the body gets motion sick. Yeah, Enrique. I don't know the exact term in English, but it's pretty much it happens due to disturbances on your inner ear and your brain cannot process that information properly. So you get some kind of sickness to, it's like your body telling you, hey dude, that's not safe. You are in danger. I'm going to make you sick. So you're going to to seek um seek to go out from from this situation. I like that. So your inner ear gets confused. Your brain gets confused with all these mixing signals. And now, so what would you do to get over motion sickness, especially if you were flying or your passenger had motion sickness? Yeah. So look to a fixed point. In that way, your brain pretty much will stabilize the overall picture and will clear some of that confusion. That's probably the most important one. Let your eyes help your brain get over the confusion that it has. That's a very important one. Keep your head steady, look at a fixed point, and let that help. Any other uh, recommendations for motion sickness? Destiny J. It's honestly dependent on if you were doing like abrupt maneuvers or whatever, but I would not do the abrupt maneuvers if I had motion sickness. Sure. So if you are doing abrupt maneuvers and you have motion sickness, one of the first things to do is to fly straight and level again. This is really important for student pilots who might get motion sick at the beginning of their training. And the good news is that over time, the body can adapt, but it's also really important for the pilot to communicate that to the flight instructors. So I've had a few students that got very motion sick when they started. And especially with one of them, he's, he's actually quite a success case. He would get sick maybe even after 15 or 20 minutes of flying. 
we would just level out the wings, keep it nice and gentle and go back. And then he built his endurance longer and longer to the point where he could do a bumpy cross country. And then eventually he could do instrument work under the hood in bumpy conditions and he was okay. But it took a long time to build up to that. So that's something to keep in mind. Other treatments that you can do for motion sickness, one of them is to get air blowing over the face, preferably cold air. When I am flying an airline, I will if I know that it's a bumpy day out, I will actually make it make the temperature colder inside the airplane on purpose just to help prevent people from getting motion sick. Also, there are different supplements that people can take. Probably the most popular ones are ginger and peppermint. There are lots of different ginger candies that you can get on the market. There are ginger teas, ginger tablets. Uh, what else? There are all sorts of different ways you can have ginger, and that can help. And then also even just peppermints. If you have a, a box of peppermints in your pocket or peppermint gum, that can help as well. Any other thoughts about motion sickness? Johnny? I definitely want to hit on, on this one because uh, the type of profiles that we fly in the military a lot are more uh, often than not 2G maneuvers or, or more. So a lot of times uh, what we do before we set up before these high G maneuvers or, or things of that nature, we'll, we will open all the vents, make sure we get plenty of air in there, and then we'll do the, do the maneuver for as, as much as we feel like these students or ourselves can take it and then do exactly what you said. We'll, we'll go wings level. If I'm doing the maneuver and the co-pilot is getting motion sickness, we'll do the maneuver, we'll go straight level, then I'll give them the flight controls and let them fly so it kind of calms them down to get their body back in tune to a straight level. They're looking at a point and not fixate on anything, slow head movements. So everything that you guys said, I will, from personal experience, very much attest to those uh, treatments. I love, the, I love the specific and personal experience. That makes a lot of sense. Oh, I forgot to mention uh, motion sickness wristband. Those are popular. I don't know if that's been proven by science, but... They're very popular on the internet. It's a band that you put on your wrist that pushes on a acupressure point. And then, okay, this is one last question on this subject. To eat or not to eat? What do people believe? They, do you, If you know that you're going to do a bunch of Arab military maneuvers like Johnny or something like that, would you eat a good breakfast ahead of time or would you not? Does anyone want to weigh in on that? I would probably want to eat something light, not like a hearty breakfast, because you don't want it to come back up, especially if you're doing maneuvers like Johnny does. So something like super duper light, but it is always good to have something on your stomach. 100%. That's what I would say. Okay. That is everything we have for motion sickness. I have one final subject for us today. We're going to talk about ear block and sinus block, and then that'll end us off for today. Before we talked about how you don't want to fly if you're sick, but one of the worst types of being sick for flying, at least one of the ones that'll surprise people, is having blocked ears. So you're not supposed to do it, but I knew a guy who flew when he had a cold and he was all stuffed up. At the time, I think he was about 22 years old. And he eventually became a flight instructor, but at the time he was just a private pilot. 
he flew around, and when he landed, his ears were blocked really badly. And so he thought that he was going to clear them out doing something called the Vesalva maneuver. That's where you hold your nose and you hold your breath, and then you blow, and that, that should hopefully push some uh, air back up into your ears, your ear canals, your, called your eustachian tubes, and open up your ears again. Well, the problem is the Vesalva maneuver should not be done under too much pressure because it can actually do more damage. He apparently did so much damage. He said he heard a popping sound, and then he got so dizzy, he fell down. So he actually damaged something in his inner ear because he had tried this maneuver. And he said the doctor didn't let him drive for a week, and he wasn't allowed to fly for a month because of it. So this is why pilots should not fly when they're stuffed up. And it can be actually quite painful also. So here's the question. If you fly when you're stuffed up, does it hurt more when you're climbing up in altitude or when you're descending? Enrique? I would say that's when you are climbing, pretty much because as the pressure um, gets lower as you climb, the air within those cavities, your ear, your nose, your sinus, the air will get less denser and start to and will start to expand. As it expands, it will force the, the tissues on those on those areas, and that's when you're going to start to, to feel the pain. Actually, I'm going to disagree with you just a little bit. When you climb, it's true that the air expands, but it will push its way out of your inner ear through the tube called the eustachian tube. By the way, eustachian tube is spelled E-U-S-T-A-C-H-I-A-N, eustachian. It's easier for the air to push its way out of the eustachian tube than it is for the air to push its way back into the eustachian tube. So you could go up in altitude and only have mild discomfort. And then when you descend down in altitude, now you have more severe discomfort because the air was able to push its way out of your ear, but now it can't go back up again. So you see how you could get yourself into trouble without realizing it uh, because you wouldn't have the pain until it was almost too late. So what would you do if you do get a blocked ear when you're flying? What are some techniques you can use? I know you can do the Vesalva maneuver. Any other techniques that you can do that might be maybe a little safer than the Vesalva maneuver? Just to check to see if I'm thinking on the same thing. What is the Vesalva maneuver? Yeah, I was going to ask. <laughs> Okay, the Vesalva maneuver is where you hold your nose and close your mouth and then you blow and it helps push the air back up in through the eustachian tubes into your ear, into your inner ear. I thought oh. the same. Yeah, great question. But not with that fancy name. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's a fancy name. And that can be done gently, but again, be careful, be careful. Uh, so you don't end up like that one guy I knew. Okay, other things you can do. You can swallow. Some people like chewing gum. You can try yawning. You can try tensing muscles in the throat or moving your jaw back and forth, kind of side to side. You can massage the area near your ears. I actually find the one of just moving my jaws is probably the best for me. And then that takes care of your ears. But also remember that your sinuses it can have the same problem. That can be, your sinuses can also be near your nose and near your cheeks. And sometimes you'll just, just get sharp pains there as well. 
So if you get that, you should probably shallow out your descent rate if you can and just give your body more time to adjust. But the real issue is to just not let your body get there in the first place. Every now and then, someone will also have trapped air in a filling for their tooth. And so if you get pain in your tooth as you're flying, you should probably get that, uh, that refilled by a dentist. Real quick, because I was going to ask you about like the pain in your tooth. Um, is that the, the way you um, uh, define like how uh, the, air, the air gets trapped in your ear because of the pressure? Is that the same reason why we get that toothache? Yes. So when you get a tooth filled, let's say you had a cavity and that the dentist put in a filling. There's not supposed to be an air bubble there. The dentist is supposed to do a tight filling without any air. But if there is air trapped, then when you go up in altitude, that air will try to expand, and that's why you would feel the pain. Okay, thank you. We're going to wrap up our discussion on medical factors. I would like to thank everyone for joining, and I just want to wish you all a great, wonderful rest of your day wherever you are in the world. Take care. This is Captain Teresa. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you were one of the people being recorded, I thank you. If you were one of the people that we edited out of this recording, I beg your forgiveness. There were many reasons that this episode may have been edited, including length, audio quality, and accuracy. We don't always have the right answers. I ask you to view this as entertainment and not as a replacement for formal instruction or advice. If you want to send constructive feedback, or if you have questions, feel free to contact us through our website, landingswithaflare.com. You can view announcements on our Instagram account, landingswithaflare. You can also join our live conversations on Clubhouse in the Club Pilot Flight Training. If you got value out of this podcast, please consider subscribing, sharing, and leaving us a positive review. Wherever you are in the world, we wish you happy landings.